Let's take our Bibles and return to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 25 through 35. As you're doing that, I just want to express again my appreciation for all of your prayers in regard to my recovery. Things are going well. I got an email this past week from one of Fran's cousins, who said she was praying that I would not be experiencing too much pain and that very soon I'd be doing the cha-cha again. (laughs) I've never done the cha-cha. I have no desire to do the cha-cha. And nobody wants to see me do the cha-cha. But the healing is coming along well, and uh, thank you for your prayers. I do appreciate them. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of God. Father, give us ears to hear this morning. Throughout his ministry, there were essentially three groups that... Jesus addressed repeatedly. The first were his disciples, whether that be the twelve or the larger circle of his followers. The second group were the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, scribes and lawyers. And the third group are variously described as the crowds or the multitudes. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, Jesus has just attended a dinner party at which he was addressing the Jewish leaders. It is the Jewish leaders who had invited him, one of the Jewish leaders who hosted the dinner party. Now, as Jesus continues his way on to Jerusalem, which, remember, is the backdrop for everything that we've been seeing here, As he continues to go to Jerusalem, where he knows he is going to be arrested, he is going to go to the cross, he once again turns to address the crowds, the multitudes. 
In doing so, he returns to a subject that he has addressed throughout his ministry, discipleship, or more specifically here, the cost of discipleship. There's one phrase in this passage which serves as the key to understanding everything that Jesus says here. It's found there in verse 26. If anyone comes to me. If anyone comes to me. If anyone comes to Jesus. Coming to Jesus has the same meaning as believing upon Jesus. The two phrases are used interchangeably in the Gospels. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So to come to Jesus is to believe on Jesus, and to believe in him is the same as coming to him. So that's the first thing we need to understand. But since Jesus begins with an if, if anyone comes to me, then we know that there must be more. It is an if-then formulation. If anyone comes to me, then. Well, then what? That's what the rest of the passage tells us. So the first thing we're told is that if anyone comes to Jesus... Number one, they must be willing to hate their own family. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Now, our Lord Jesus had reminded his disciples on more than one occasion of the purpose of his ministry on earth. I have not come to call righteous men but sinners to repentance. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And at this point in our Lord's life, we find him just a few months away from the cross. A few months away from Calvary. And he is preaching about the kingdom of God. And as a result of his preaching, many men and women wanted to join him. They wanted to become part of that band of disciples. But just as the Marines used to say that they were not looking for just anyone but a few good men, only those willing to submit, Jesus says, to the difficult conditions of discipleship can consider themselves to be his disciple. And that certainly is not everyone Only true disciples would do, for in the the days ahead, anyone who was willing to follow him would have to join with him as he faced the full wrath of the Jewish leadership as well as the political power of the Roman Empire. You see, there's a specific context to this. This is not just theoretical To be a disciple of Jesus at this point in time is going to guarantee that you're going to go through some difficult times. Only true disciples would do. 
For some of the disciples, this could and would mean arrest, jail, scourgings, and even death. If anyone comes after me, said Jesus. With this idea of discipleship, we find the same principles that we find in regard to the marriage relationship, that of leaving family, cleaving to one's wife, and then becoming one in body, soul, and spirit. That's a really good description of discipleship. Leaving behind everything else that would encumber me so that I might devote myself fully to following Jesus. In his book, according to Luke, his commentary on this gospel, David Gooding writes this, thousands have been and still are confronted with this choice right at the outset of their Christian lives. They see as clearly as Saul of Tarsus saw that salvation is a free gift. Equally clearly, they see that confession of faith in Christ will cost them career, friends, family, perhaps life itself. And they have to decide between Christ and salvation on the one side and all else on the other side. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own, This is a concept best understood when we view it side by side with what the Lord said in Matthew chapter 10. Verses 34 through 37, he said this, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, Here in the context of Luke 14, our our Lord is challenging those in the crowd who were thinking of following him that they would have to hate their family members. Now, obviously, this is not to be taken as a command to hate our families. Scripture is very clear that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to love our families. We are called to care for them, to sacrifice for them. What's going on here, rather, is Jesus' call for the one who comes to him to give his highest loyalty to Jesus, even above family. That is, our devotion to Christ must be such that when compared with any other devotion, all other things pale in comparison to our commitment to Jesus. Have we calculated that cost? We've got to realize that to love Jesus Christ and to follow him means that he is the ultimate priority in our lives. That's the first condition of discipleship. The second is like it. If we would come to Jesus, we must be willing to hate our own lives. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Our Lord has already challenged the disciples back in chapter 9. 
when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. To deny oneself means to choose by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to live daily in the spiritual reality that Paul describes to the Corinthians, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Canfield says, to deny oneself is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. Turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. Can you imagine a more countercultural statement than that? Because the entire world wants us to think that everything revolves around us. Once we place our faith in Jesus, we become his bond servants, his slaves, and we begin to learn to live our lives to fulfill his will, not our own. That's discipleship. We learn to deny our self-confidence, our self-adequacy, so-called, our sense of self-sufficiency. We learn to deny all those things which we are taught by the spirit of this age and rather become nothing for Christ. Either Jesus is Lord of our lives or we are. We cannot have it both ways. In 1979, a man named Chet Bitterman, a missionary with Wycliffe Bible Translators, arrived in Bogota, Colombia, to begin work among the Carajona Indians. I remember this because... I was a senior in high school, and I was the next year going to enter into Bible college, and this was a huge deal. Before his arrival there in Columbia, Bitterman wrote in his diary, maybe this is just some kind of self-inflated martyr complex, but I find this recurring thought that perhaps God will call me to be martyred for him in his service in Colombia. I am willing. Two years later, he was captured by terrorists who demanded that Wycliffe translators leave Colombia immediately. Wycliffe refused those demands, and seven weeks later, Bitterman's body was discovered in an abandoned bus. He had loved his life less than his Lord, and he paid the ultimate price. And of course, we could repeat stories like that. There are innumerable stories like that throughout the history of the church. Because throughout the history of the church, there have been men and women who take the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14 seriously. They have come to Jesus and they have loved him more than life itself. But Jesus says more than that. He says not only must we love Jesus more than any earthly relationship, more even than our own lives, but we must also be willing to carry our cross. 
Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now we need to understand what Jesus is doing here. Because this idea of carrying the cross, particularly in our day, the meaning that Jesus was pouring into these words is really lost in a number of different ways. When we talk about carrying the cross, we're talking about something that is ongoing. It's not a one-time event. Often when I'm talking to husbands and wives and I'm working through Ephesians 5 with them where you know, husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for, for the church. That's the example that is given for husbands. And I make the point that what Paul is really getting at there is, is not usually going out in a blaze of sacrificial glory. Here is my wife. The train is coming. She's standing on the tracks. And I'm going to go and push her off and let the train hit me. Ah, glorious. Loving our wives, brothers, like Christ loved the church, is is a day-by-day sacrifice. It's ongoing, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, month by month, year by year. And that's what it means to carry our cross. It's not just being a Chet Bitterman. It's living our lives day by day where God has placed us. Sometimes in the most mundane kind of ways. Well, back in Luke 9, the Lord told his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily to follow me. Jesus wanted the crowds to get a full picture of what he was asking And so he declares, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, if when we think of the cross, we think of a golden piece of jewelry that we wear around our necks, we are never going to understand what Jesus is talking about here. The cross was an instrument of shame and humiliation and death used by the Roman authorities to punish criminals. Jesus was not the only one ever to be crucified. He was one among many, many, many thousands. The cross was simply a common form of execution for the lowest of the low. And that is the image that Jesus calls us to. When the Jews watched a criminal pick up a cross and follow a squad of Roman soldiers to the place of execution, they all knew, as they knew when Jesus did it, this is a one-way trip. 
The criminal, of course, took up his cross under duress. Jesus calls us to do so willingly and to do so every day. And so we need to understand something else about carrying our cross. To carry our cross does not mean putting up with a difficult mother-in-law. We're dealing with some handicap or sickness. That's often how people talk about it. Oh, it's my cross to bear. To carry our cross means that daily we are putting to death our flesh. Paul wrote to the Galatians, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We are not to coddle or cuddle our flesh. We are not to tolerate it. We are not to give it any encouragement. We are to put it to death. We are to nail our flesh to the cross daily by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. To carry our cross also means that if Jesus is Lord, then as Paul said, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. So we are to daily take up our cross and, says Jesus, follow me. Many of the crowds were willing to follow Jesus for a while, but then they left him because he continued to offer them a spiritual kingdom when they were looking for a political kingdom or because his teaching was simply too difficult to accept. Keep your finger there in Luke 14 and jump over with me to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, of course, at the beginning of the chapter, you have the account of Jesus feeding of the 5,000. Those are 5,000 men, so he actually fed a lot more than that. And then Jesus walks on water, and the crowd that he fed followed him. Not walking on the water. They went on land, but they followed him to where he was going. And Jesus rebukes them, and then he begins to teach them some very difficult things. He begins to teach them that he is the central focus of salvation. He begins to tell them that God is sovereign in the bestowal of his grace. He says in verse 35, for instance, we've quoted this earlier, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And then verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 48, I 
am the bread of life. And after he has said all of these things, he's criticized the people for not really wanting him, but simply what he could do for them, essentially saying, all you guys want is another meal. You want to see miracles. You want me to give you more free bread and fish. And then, saying things that no sane human being would ever say, Everything revolves around me, guys. If you want eternal life, it's me. And God has chosen some, and he will draw them. And when God draws them, they will come to me. They hear all of this. And what happens? Verse 59 These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Well, apparently it did, because in verse 66 we read that as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now, you need to understand the term disciple has different connotations. There is a general sense in which a disciple is simply a learner. And so, in this case... As John describes disciples, he's simply talking about those who came to listen. But they were never actually committed to Christ. And so they left thousands. And Jesus is left there with the twelve. That's the difference between a false disciple and a true disciple. A true disciple follows his master wherever his master leads. A true disciple not only denies himself and takes up his cross, but follows, not even knowing where he's going. As long as his master says this way, that's all he needs. Sometimes, This would even involve following to death. There were disciples of Jesus who themselves were crucified on a cross. Several of the original twelve would suffer death in that way years later. To follow Jesus means to walk in obedience to his word so that our lives bring glory to him. And at the same time, and here is the strange thing, as we are making nothing of ourselves and making everything of Jesus, and as we are sacrificing for him, following him wherever he leads, the result is joy. The result is joy. Once his disciples boasted they would follow him anywhere, even unto death, remember what Jesus says. I'll paraphrase here. Really? 
Today, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. After you return from denying me, then go on. Unless the Spirit of God lives in you and empowers you, you can't make those kinds of promises. If you are going to follow me, you are going to suffer. Jesus, in that context, was speaking specifically to Peter, but about all disciples, saying, you know what? Before you say something like that, you better understand what you're talking about. Because the disciples thought what? They thought, well, okay, at the end of all of this, Jesus is going to take the throne in Jerusalem. Remember, they were fighting with one another concerning who gets to sit at his right hand. Jesus had to correct them. You guys don't have any idea what you're talking about. Well, as Jesus so often does, he adds to his direct teaching with stories. In this case, he tells these potential disciples two stories to illustrate how he had counted the cost before he came into this world to save us from our sin. First is about a tower. He says in verse 28 and 29, which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Which one of you, our Lord looks out over the crowd and reminds them of a very basic principle of life. If a man needs to build a tower in a field to keep watch over his field and over his flocks, isn't it only natural to first calculate the cost before he begins to build it? Otherwise, if he merely has a a vision to build a tower and in the heat of the moment runs out and purchases some material only discover later to discover later that he has but enough to build a foundation and nothing more has no money left to finish the project onlookers are going to come they're going to see the results and they're going to ridicule him this man began to build and was not able to finish Jesus' second story uses a different metaphor. It's about the cost of battle. Verse 31 and 32, or What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So Jesus is using two different metaphors here. One, agriculture. One's building a, a tower in his field. The other is military. No king under attack would begin a war with his enemy without first sitting down with his generals and taking counsel to see whether or not he was strong enough to defeat them. In fact, uh, the, the, the fact that he only had 10,000 men while his enemy had 20,000 is not the issue. 
The issue is whether he is strong enough with his 10,000 men to defeat an army with 20,000 men. If not, then he would be wise to send a delegation and ask terms of peace. Our Lord came to build his church, saying the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Jesus was in a battle against a spiritual foe who was determined to destroy the church that he was building. Still is, by the way. Jesus wanted faithful men and women to join him in the building as well as in the battle. It would be a spiritual battle against Satan for the souls of men and women and children. This king was willing to give up all that he had so that others might live. Through his death and resurrection, he defeated Satan, and God was then able to, as Paul says, deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. At the same time, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was willing to count the cost to purchase, to build, to fight and win the battle. In light of those spiritual realities, we can see that the call to discipleship is a serious step. We must love Christ more than any human relationship. We must love Christ more than our own lives. We must love Christ so much that we are willing to take up our cross and live our lives for him rather than for ourselves. We must love Christ so much that we are willing to follow him wherever he leads us. Finally, we must be willing to give up all of our possessions for the sake of Christ. Verse 33 says, So then none of you can be my disciples this disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If we understand what Jesus is saying here, then we understand that as disciples of his, we no longer own anything of material value. But we are merely stewards of that which he has entrusted to us. 
At times, our Lord may ask some of his disciples to literally give up their earthly possessions to serve him in a certain manner, and he expects his disciples to do so gladly. The important thing is that whosoever desires to follow him must be free from worldly-mindedness, from covetousness, from selfishness, from greed, and be wholly devoted to him. To live lives open-handedly, generously, not being bound to this world and to stuff. It's interesting to note that Judas would have been in this audience. During his time with Jesus, Judas would have heard sermon after sermon on the subject of discipleship. And as he was listening to Jesus teach that a true disciple must be willing to part with his possessions for Jesus' sake, Judas was quietly stealing money from the common purse. The things of this earth were very important to him, as well as to many others in this crowd. As we'll see when we get to chapter 18, the rich young ruler had a similar problem. He asked Jesus, what shall I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus ultimately uh, says, listen, you lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have and distribute it to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me. But Luke says that when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. The Lord wanted the man, not his money. In this case, the rich young ruler was in bondage to his wealth. And so he was not free to follow Jesus because he had already chosen another master. The issue is not how much you possess. The issue is how much you're willing to give up. The issue is who you're serving or what you're serving. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, We will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and riches. And now Jesus concludes this particular sermon with a word about salt. (laughs) And what he has to say has nothing to do with salt being bad for your health. Salt was used in this community as both a preservative and to add flavor to food. Our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount told his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. If you um, have a favorite preacher and you see that preacher in different contexts and you find that he is preaching sermons that are very similar to something you've heard before. Don't be too critical. 
Jesus, it seems, <laughs> preached the same sermons again and again and again. He's saying here exactly what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Different people need to hear it. Sometimes the same people need to hear it again and again and again. That's me. He had walked among the religious leaders long enough to see that when the salt of their lives was poured out on the Jewish community, it failed either to arrest corruption or to add spiritual flavor. They had lost their value as salt, and their lives had become useless and tasteless. At the same time, Jesus is looking for men and women who would follow him, even into the fires of persecution and death, if necessary, without losing that spiritual flavor. One commentator on the Gospel of John wrote this, A great deal is entailed in being a disciple of Jesus. But the enrichment of one's whole life and the eternal welfare resulting from it is still much greater and more glorious. In addition, we must remember, not to be a disciple of Jesus means to be a disciple of the powers of darkness. And to be a servant of the world and of sin costs incalculably more than to be a disciple of Jesus. The price of it is the loss of the highest happiness in this life and darkness and affliction of soul throughout eternity. How insignificant is the price of self-renunciation in his service in comparison with the price to be paid for rejecting him? Jesus said... He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. In effect, listen carefully to my words, for your whole life, now and in eternity, depends on it. And Peter, as well as Judas, was listening to these words. Have you calculated the cost of becoming a disciple of Christ? Here are the requirements of discipleship as set forth by the master. We must be willing to love Christ more than any human relationship. We must be willing to love Christ more than our own lives. We must be willing to love Christ so much that we are willing to carry our own cross. We must be willing to love Christ far more than material possessions. There are no other options. Is there any reason why you would want to live any other way? I hope there is not. If there is, it's because you don't really understand. What a waste of your life to live any other way than as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I beg you, do not choose anything over Christ. Being his disciple brings life. But if you are not a disciple of his, then you are a disciple of the powers of darkness. And you are in bondage to death. There is no other option, but the choice is set before you. One way or the other. Will you be one who gives up everything to receive everything?
Or will you be like those we saw in John 6? Who may have even referred to themselves as disciples, but when things got tough, when they heard things they didn't like, they just walked away. Which will it be? Father, I pray that all of us would love Christ far beyond anything in this world, including our own lives. Father, work within the hearts and lives of your people to make us willing to follow Christ wherever he leads. To give up, Father, and to sacrifice anything that he calls us to sacrifice. Father, may we be those who see the glory of Christ as our priority, as our greatest desire. Father, if there are those here this morning who do not know Christ at all, Father, change their hearts. May they see the glory of Jesus May they see their own sin. And may, Father, you draw them to that place where they say, yes, that's what I want. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be his disciple. Father, help us all to count the cost. But may we count it truly and see, Father, the worthlessness of everything in our lives without Christ. And to see the inestimable value of Jesus. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen.